0: Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Uh, just a couple of announcements. You'll see on the cards you have most of an introduction to, uh, to Ray Kurzweil. Um, Eleven of you got copies <laughs> of his new book, The Singularity is Near Outside, because that's all the publisher sent to Clean Well-Lighted Place. But uh, Clean Well-Lighted Place is just up the street a block and a half on your way out if you want to walk up there. And uh, order a copy, you can do that, or you'll find it online. And uh, those of you who have copies, Ray will stick around for a little while afterwards and sign them, or some of the other books of his that are out there. I should announce that usually these seminars about long-term thinking are at Fort Mason, and they're usually on second Fridays. Obviously, we're not at Fort Mason, and this is not a second Friday. It's a third, I think. And indeed, the next one will also be uh, against type. It'll be Wednesday, October 5th. Uh, It's three speakers who've never been on the stage together before. Freeman Dyson, his daughter Esther Dyson, and son George Dyson. And indeed, we put together the event around uh, the fun and the occasion of of putting it together on stage. The subject is Freeman's, and he'll be the the main speaker. And uh, the subject is... um, The Difficulty of Looking Far Ahead. That will be back at Fort Mason. Uh, Unless one of you knows another large theater like this that can be got for October 5th, we're going to be in our old, rather small venue of the uh, uh, conference center at Fort Mason, which holds a smaller, smaller audience than this, about 310. So the workaround on that, so we don't have a big overflow problem of people hoping to get in and being horribly surprised is um, if you want to go to that talk October 5th, uh, same time, different station over at, at Fort Mason, call the Long Now office and just give them your name or how many seats you want. Uh, you don't need to write it down, but it's five six one six five eight two, 6582 and uh, that way you'll know for sure you can get in. We'll keep some seats for sort of standbys, and that particular uh, Place, Unlike this one has windows to the outside and so on the outside possibility uh, that we uh, still get a lot of people. We can open the windows. You can stand outside and see and hear what you need to see and hear. In that case, dress warm. So that's the workaround for that one. Uh, you may, I hope you all got these cards. They have the real introduction for Ray. They also have on the back a place for finessing the questions. So if during the talk or during the Q&A afterwards you have a question, go ahead and write it down. If you don't have a pen, beg one from near you. And it's helpful if you put your name on there, and uh, if you want to, your email address. Uh, The email address will just get you on the mailing list for the forthcoming talks if you want. Some of the future speakers are, as you see in here, Clay Shirky, Sam Harris, Uh, a debate between, not debate, but discussion between uh, Peter Schwartz and uh, Ralph Kavanagh, on nuclear power and climate change, and then an amazing uh, show-and-tell about Bali over the last thousand years next February. The way that we get those questions to the front is, as you write them, pass them over to the aisle. There'll be some guys in yellow hats, people in yellow hats, uh, who will occasionally stroll up and down, collect those questions. They'll pass them up to me, I'll pick out the really uh, difficult ones, pointed ones, pass them on to Kevin Kelly, who will further sift them to the really annoying ones, and that's, uh, he'll come up and ask those of uh, Array who will do the best he can with them. The attraction for the Long Now Foundation in this series of seminars about long-term thinking is that the scope of, of Kurzweil's law, the law of accelerating returns, is the scope about that of Darwin's idea. Uh, In this case, it's about pace rather than uh, how selectivity occurs, but it is a great big idea, and it's a great big idea that happens to be bearing down on us right now. Uh, Ray himself takes many of the things that he writes about personally, not only as an inventor, but as a person who would like to uh, move on toward immortality sooner rather than later. I just learned that Well, I'm 66 and take seven pills a day, just to maintain. He's 57 and takes 220 pills a day, just to maintain. So lock and load, rock and roll. We're full of drugs and good to go. Ray Kurzweil.
1: Well, thanks, Stuart. Uh, it's exciting to speak to a group that is considering long-term trends. Uh, a lot of models of how the future will unfold are linear models, and uh, an exponential trend looks like a straight line, if you look at just a short segment of it. So all these government models that are linear work quite well for two or three years. Uh, it's interesting to, to listen to this Social Security debate where they're talking about 2042, which is around the date I described for the singularity where there'll be very transformative change and the government models have uh, longevity increasing by 11% and the economy growing by 4%. Actually, it's 2.7%, even though we've seen higher growth than that in the last 15 years. Uh, I've been thinking about technology trends for many decades and... I want to share some of that perspective with you. This, this building is actually an interesting setting for that. Sixty years ago, August 1945, the United Nations Treaty was signed here. And uh, if you think about what's happened in the last 60 years, a few things have happened, like computers, the Internet. Um, and so people who have very often used the last 60 years as a model for what will happen in the next 60 years, that is actually what happened at... This Time Magazine conference I went to in 2003 on the 50th anniversary of the discovery of the structure of DNA. All of our speakers were asked, what will the next 50 years bring? And every speaker there, except for Bill Joy and myself, used the last 50 years as a model for the next 50 years. Uh, According to my models, we'll make 32 times the progress in the next half century because we're doubling the paradigm shift rate, roughly the rate of progress every decade. Uh, So there'll be a 30-fold increase in the next half century. The whole 20th century was about 20 years of progress at the year 2000 rate because we were speeding up to that rate. We'll make another 20 years of progress at the year 2000 rate, equivalent to the whole 20th century in about 14 years. We'll do it again in seven years because of the explosive nature of exponential growth. We'll make about 20,000 years of progress in the 20th century, 21st century, 10,000 years uh, in the first 90 years, and we'll do another 10,000 years in the last decade. That's the explosive nature of exponential growth. That's why the future is often surprising. Short-term trends tend to uh, be off in one direction because we underestimate the complexity of tasks, but long-term predictions very often are uh, wrong uh, in being overly conservative. Uh, Every speaker there really kind of took today's research agenda. It was mildly optimistic that maybe today's research problems will be solved, so Jim Watson himself said, well, in 50 years we'll have drugs that enable you to eat as much as you want and remain slim. And I said, Jim, we've already done that in animals, these FERCO, fat insulin receptor knockout experiments. These mice uh, ate ravenously and remained slim. They got the health benefits of being slim. They didn't get diabetes. They didn't get heart disease. They lived 20% longer. They got most of the benefit of caloric restriction. While doing the opposite, there are five pharmaceutical companies rushing to bring fat insulin receptor inhibitors some using RNA interference, which is a new technology that can turn genes off to the human market. It'll be 5 to 10 years, not 50 years. Uh, Very few of the speakers there really understood uh, the important consequences of exponential growth. And this linear versus what I call the intuitive linear perspective versus the historically correct exponential perspective is a really critical uh, insight to have when contemplating future, because there's a profound difference in in outcome. So I've often thought about this idea of looking ahead 10,000 years, if you really consider the exponential view, the next 100 years chronologically, uh, in terms of calendar time, are going to be uh, very transformative. It's really hard to imagine going beyond that. But I'd like to share some of these uh, insights with you. I I got into this uh, because I realized that timing was critical to invention succeeding, so I did this as sort of an enabling uh, activity for my inventing career. I realized that inventions to succeed had to make sense for the time period when you finished the project, not when you started the project. Uh, We get a lot of business plans today, and we do some mentoring and some investing, and it's quite clear to me that 90% of those projects, the R&D teams would do exactly what they say in terms of technological uh, achievement, and 95% of those projects would still fail because all the enabling factors that are needed uh, would not be in place at the right time. Uh, I was at Google uh, the day before yesterday. They were in the right place at the right time with the right solution, particularly when you have a networked world. Uh, the better solution will emerge very quickly. Build it and they will come is really true when you have a lot of people sharing their ideas in an unstructured way. Uh, But timing is really the critical thing. So I I became an ardent student of technology trends and I tried to approach this as a data-driven exercise. I collected a lot of data about how technology in different fields, computation, communication, uh, and other fields uh, were progressing and built some mathematical models. And uh, in the 1980s, I wrote my first book, The Age of Intelligent Machines, based on these models, what I call the Law of accelerating returns, and it had hundreds of predictions about the 1990s and the early two thousand years, which were considered quite radical back then, but it actually seems like a pretty mild book now, although predictions like computers achieving Turing level Turing test level intelligence really haven 't changed in terms of time frame, but uh, things like a worldwide communications network occurring in the uh, mid 1990s. Seemed like a very radical concept then, but I'd seen the ARPANET go from 10,000 nodes to 20,000 in one year to 40,000, used by a few thousand scientists. Most people had never heard of it. But it was clear that doubling would mean there would be 20 million going to 40 million, going to 80 million nodes in the mid 1990s, and then it would be on everybody's radar screen. Uh, this type of technology seemed rather threatening to totalitarian regimes like the Soviet Union, so I felt they'd be faced with a dilemma of either providing their professionals with these very powerful workstations much more capable than the copiers they were banning, which would destroy totalitarian control. Or they could ban these devices, which would destroy their economy, and that would also do them in. I actually felt they would do a little bit of both, and I think that is what happened. Uh, that 1991 coup against Gorbachev, it uh, wasn't Yeltsin bravely standing on a tank that overturned the coup. It was the fact that everybody was in touch with one another with this decentralized electronic communication, fax machines. Uh, early form of email using teletype machines and everybody was in the know so this paradigm of grabbing the centralized radio and TV station and keeping everybody in the block didn't work anymore and in fact I do think these decentralized technologies we have very rapid new paradigms using that like the the blogosphere uh, are highly democratizing and not just in terms of political democracy. Somebody going to a doctor's office will be uh, more knowledgeable than their doctor if they have a chronic condition because they're part of a worldwide community that shares their interest. So I'd like to talk to you about some of these trends uh, and then draw some implications and talk about some issues that are of particular importance in terms of long-term horizons and long-term planning. Our critical issue that comes up is, can we tell the future? Stuart, I think, just mentioned uh, Future Talk will deal with how hard it is to tell the future. Uh, and you'll commonly hear people well it's, say it's very hard to, to predict the future. And it is true... It's difficult to predict specific projects uh, and specific outcomes. Will Google stock be higher or lower than it it is today three years from now? That's hard to predict. Uh, What will the next wireless standard be? Will it be based on WiMAX or CDMA or G3 or some other standard? Uh, That's hard to predict. But if you were to ask me what will the cost of sequencing a base pair of DNA in 2010 or the cost of a MIPS of computing in 2012 or the spatial and temporal resolution of brain scanning in 2014, I can give you a figure and I believe it is likely to be accurate and I say this not just overfitting past data but I've been using these models for forward-looking predictions and uh, these trends are, are really rather predictable now you might wonder how could that be I mean if we can't predict a single project how can we predict the overall result of this worldwide chaotic activity well we see other examples of that in science where you can have a complex system where there's many unpredictable random events And the overall properties of that system are highly predictable. For example, thermodynamics. Trying to predict a single particle in the air is uh, impossible. And you've got all these unpredictable particles all doing uh, unpredictable chaotic interactions. The overall results of that are highly predictable according to the laws of thermodynamics. And an evolutionary process, in order for it to be an evolutionary process, is inherently sufficiently complex and consisting of many unpredictable elements with millions of people and millions of projects and IPOs and bankruptcies and all kinds of unpredictable events, the results are remarkably predictable, and I'll show you that. And it's not just Moore's law. Moore's law is really one example of many, even within electronics, uh, and it's true for really anything having to do with information. The two important observations is that the power of information technologies, and there's many different ways to measure it, price, performance, capacity, bandwidth, the amount of data being moved around, the sides of human knowledge, no matter what sort of measure you take of, uh, of anything having to do with information, is growing exponentially. There's a doubling time. Typically, it's 12 months, but maybe in some cases it's 15 months or depending on what you're measuring. Uh, the other important observation is that information technology ultimately will encompass everything that's important. We're not quite there yet, but the sort of information component of the value of products and services is, grow- is asymptoting up to 100%. We're there for many types of products, certainly media products, for example, but even the chairs you're sitting in are, have an information component because they were designed in computer-assisted design stations, manufactured in just-in-time factories with uh, automated assembly and, and so on. Certainly cars are estimated to have a 30 to 40% information content and there's a 50% deflation factor for that information component. So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let me show you some of this and then we'll talk about the implications for for long-term trends. Uh, I mentioned that the paradigm shift rate is doubling every decade. Uh, I mean we have hundreds of examples of this. The first virtual reality technology where you could actually be with someone else even though you were hundreds of miles apart at least as far as the auditory sense was concerned, the telephone, Uh, that is actually how people in the 19th century viewed the telephone, because prior to to that, you actually had to be in the same room with somebody to hold a conversation, so now you could create these virtual spaces that took half a century to be adopted. Uh, More recent communication technologies like the web, personal computers, the internet, uh, the adoption by a mass audience, a quarter of the U.S. population took only a few years' time. If we look at Different communication technologies, Uh, ones earlier in the 20th century, television, radio, the telephone took decades. Uh, These more recent technologies are measured in a few years' time. Uh, These graphs, all of them except for one that I'll point out, are logarithmic graphs, meaning as you go up the y-axis, it represents increasing the number of powers of 10, multiplying by powers by 10 uh, at each level. Uh, So a straight line on a logarithmic graph represents exponential growth. Now this is an interesting graph. It just shows the basic acceleration in an evolutionary process. And biology is an evolutionary process, but so is technology. In fact, technology emerged from the biological process that that led to... uh, uh, Technology emerged from the evolutionary process that led to the technology creating species... And evolution works by creating a capability, increasing complexity, but then creating a capability and then using that capability to create the next stage. That's fundamentally why an evolutionary process accelerates and why the fruits, the products of that evolutionary process at each stage get exponentially more powerful. The first stage in biology, in fact, the, the creation of biology, the evolution of biology, took billions of years to evolve DNA, actually RNA came first. So now evolution had a little computer system, an information backbone to keep track of its experiments. It then used that to evolve the next stage, the Cambrian explosion, when all the body plans of the animals were evolved. Uh, That went 100 times faster. That only took 10 million years. Then that became a mature technology, in effect, and it used these mature body plans to evolve higher cognitive functions. Uh, Biological evolution kept accelerating. Homo sapiens evolved in only a few hundred thousand years. Uh, There were actually only a few minor genetic changes from the earlier primates uh, to Homo sapiens, uh, three of them. One uh, allowed a larger skull uh, at the expense of having a weaker jaw, so other primates can uh, have a stronger jaw, but we have a bigger brain. More of that brain matter was devoted to uh, higher uh, cognitive functions with a larger cerebral cortex. And the third one was to move the pivot point of the thumb up one inch, chimpanzees may look like they have a similar hand but they don't have a power grip, they don't have fine motor coordination so now we had an opposable appendage that actually could allow us to take our mental models of the world and actually change the world uh, to reflect our sort of mental what-if experiments and that led to the creation of uh, technology which was the next stage in this evolutionary process. So again working by indirection, evolution used one of its products, a technology creating species to evolve the next stage. And the next stage went again about 10 times faster, evolution of stone tools, fire, the wheel, early primitive technology took tens of thousands of years rather than hundreds of thousands. We then always used the latest stage of technology to evolve the next stage. Half a millennium ago the printing press took a, took a century to be adopted. Half a century ago the first computers were Uh, laid out with pen on paper and wired with screwdrivers. Now we use computers. In fact, we've had many generations of advanced computer-assisted design software where engineers can specify some high-level formulas and 12 layers of intermediate design uh, get implemented automatically. So we're always using the latest technology to create the next. The intellectual feats of human civilization today would be impossible without the integration with our technology. And interestingly, on this double logarithmic graph, it's a straight line reflecting this continual acceleration. There's been a few arguments made with this chart, one saying, well, with the Cambrian explosion didn't take 10 million years, it's 25 million years, and the Internet, you've got to include the ARPANET, so it's not 10 years, it's 25 years. Well, we make those changes, it still get a straight line because those changes actually don't affect uh, things on the scale of this chart. The Internet didn't take a million years to evolve, the Cambrian explosion didn't happen in 15 years, uh, the other objections. Well, I only put points on this chart that uh, that fit on the straight line. Uh, so I took uh, 14 different lists. These were not people trying to make or dis- or, or unmake uh, my particular point. This is just what Carl Sagan's Cosmic Calendar, the American Museum of Natural History, the Encyclopaedia Britannica, or these other thinkers and, and uh, reference works thought were the key events in technological or biological evolution. And you do see some spreading of the points. People do disagree about how long the Cambrian explosion took, when language started, what the key events were, but you see an inexorable straight line. And it's pretty much uh, common sense uh, that things have accelerated. A billion years ago, not much happened in a million years, for example. Uh, if we put these events on a linear graph, then it looks like everything has just happened. Uh, so. If we examine the difference between a linear and exponential trend, you can see, if you look at that exponential, this is on a linear graph. Uh, And if you look at a small piece of that uh, soaring exponential, uh, it looks like a straight line. And many uh, sophisticated observers will just intuitively assume that the current pace of progress will continue and don't fully factor in the fact that the tools are growing in power exponentially. I had an argument the other day with someone doing brain reverse engineering studying a particular ion channel in a particular dendrite who did the mental experiment, well it's going to take me 20 months to finish this particular ion channel and there's five other ion channels and then there's all these different dendrites and without factoring in the fact that there are 50,000 other people doing this work, the resolution of brain scanning is doubling every year in, in 3D temporal uh, spatial resolution and also increasing in temporal resolution Uh, The computers we have to simulate these processes are doubling in power every year. The databases are doubling every year. And really failing to factor all of that uh, into consideration. Another good example was, I mean, the Genome Project was not a mainstream project when it was announced in 1990. Mainstream uh, observers, skeptics, said, uh, we just finished sequencing one ten-thousandth of the Genome in 1989. How are you going to finish this project in 15 years? And then 10 years later, the skeptics were still going strong saying, saying, I told you this wasn't going to work. I mean, here we are 10 years into a 15-year project and you finished 2% of the project. But it's the last seven doublings that get you from 1% to 100% and the project was done in time and we've been doubling the amount of genetic data uh, every year uh, up to the present time. Now, the ongoing exponential growth of these properties of information technology Uh, don't happen with a single paradigm. Moore's law is a good example of a paradigm. It was not the first, and it won't be the last paradigm to bring exponential growth to computing, for example. We've had actually five different paradigms so far, and the next one, three-dimensional molecular computing, will continue that trend. Particular paradigms have a capability for exponential growth, but they do peter out. The classical example is rabbits in Australia. I mean, they eat up the foliage, and then they can't multiply anymore. but in information technology, when a particular paradigm begins to be to reach its uh, limitations, or even when we just see so the end of the road, it creates research pressure for the next uh, paradigm. They were shrinking vacuum tubes in the 1950s. Vacuum tubes were the third paradigm, and they, they were shrinking them to keep the exponential growth going. That hit a wall. It then got picked up. You know, without missing a beat, with a completely different paradigm, transistors, which are not small tubes, it's a different, completely different technology. So the ongoing exponential growth is made up of a series of S-curves where each S-curve represents a paradigm or a particular type of technology that has exponential potential and then, and then levels off. It brings up the question, well, isn't there some fundamental limit of matter and energy to, to comprise or uh, to support information processes like computation... And I do talk about that uh, in the book, and the answer is yes. There are limits, but they're not very limiting. Uh, Nanotube circuitry, which is something we have working in in laboratories today, Uh, if you built a one-inch cube of nanotube circuitry, it would be, according to my calculation, which I derive in the book, 100 million times more powerful than the computational capacity of the human brain. And nanotube circuitry is not the ultimate in matter and energy to support computational processes. So the, the limits are not very limiting. Now, information technology, whereas the paradigm shift rate is, according to my models, doubling every year, information technologies, I mean, every decade, information technologies are doubling uh, their capacity, bandwidth, price performance every year. Uh, I do have a team of people now that gathers data. Uh, Catherine Myronik, here in the audience, has uh, been a leader of that Effort and we gather data on many different types of uh, information technology. So this has kind of taken on a life of its own and enables us now to look ahead at long-term trends. And I still use this process to time my own technology projects and also to develop business plans and to evaluate other people's business plans. Uh, I think it's a very valuable tool to really understand where computers and communication and biological technologies will be in three years and five years. You can really make... You know, reasonable estimates, uh, and if anything the future will be more remarkable than anything we can imagine today because we're going to have everybody in this room and millions of other people using their creativity to apply these very powerful uh, capabilities, but even the mental experiments we can do today of what, what is feasible with these technologies uh, is quite informative and, and formidable. A personal experience when I was at MIT in the 1960s, I got there 40 years ago, uh, all the professors and students shared this one. IBM 7094 had 32,000 words of 36-bit memory, so it's about 144,000 bytes. It uh, was a quarter of a MIP, much less powerful than the computer in your cell phone today. Took up a r- room about this size, uh, $11 million in, in, rel- in current dollars. Uh, there's been, just in terms of MIPs per dollar, there's been 24 doublings in 36 years. If you add the other Levels of improvement, the vastly increased memories and input-output capabilities, uh, you get a doubling about every year. Uh, I mean, here I put 49 famous computers on a logarithmic graph, so every time you go up one level of the y-axis, it represents multiplying computational power by a factor of 100. This goes back to the first uh, electromechanical data processing equipment used in the 1890 census. Then you have relay-based computers like Alan Turing's a machine that cracked the German Enigma code. Uh, You have vacuum tube computers uh, that were used to predict the election of Eisenhower in 1952, the first time the networks had done that. 1960s, discrete transistor computers used by NASA in the first space launches. And then several decades of integrated circuits and you see very smooth, exponential growth. Uh, By the way, that's not a straight line. That's better than a straight line. It took us three years to double the price performance in 1900, two years around 1950. We're now doubling it every one year. There's a theoretical reason for that second level of exponential growth, the slow exponential growth of the rate of exponential growth. Because as an industry gets more cost effective, uh, it grows, and so we put more money into research and development. I mean, the computer industry, such as it was, was a handful of government war-related projects, and academic projects in 1950, today it's a trillion-dollar industry. Uh, This is uh, Hans Moravec's similar chart. These are different computers. Uh, He draws trend lines. The later he draws the trend line, the higher the slope, representing this second level of exponential growth. Uh, And I'll show you quickly just many examples in electronics, but I particularly want to show you examples outside of electronics. But the interesting thing about this supercomputer chart, is uh, well, I, I put this together recently, uh, it's in the book, it's already out of date in that all the news that's come out in just in the last few months since the book is, is better than what I projected, but this projects 10 to the 16th, 10 quadrillion uh, calculations per second by 2013. That figure is significant because that's my estimate of the amount of computation required to functionally emulate the human brain Uh, I have four different analyses by different researchers and research groups in the book. They come out between 10 of the 14th and 10 of the 16th, so I picked 10 of the 16th to be conservative. If you were to simulate every nonlinearity in every dendrite and every neuron, it's 10 of the 19th, but I don't believe that's necessary. Uh, Even if you had to pick 10 of the 19th, it only delays things by a few years. At any rate, this comes out to 2013. Uh, Just two weeks ago, Japan, Two different Japanese companies announced 10 quadrillion CPS supercomputers are, that they're building and will be ready by 2010. So uh, we will, we're on track here. Uh, different uh, types of trans-dynamic RAM memory, uh, actually that's going through different technologies. This is an interesting chart, this is the average uh, transistor price, so in 1968 you could buy a transistor for a dollar. And actually, if you back up further, when I was a high school student in the early 60s, I would hang out at these uh, surplus electronic shops on Canal Street, and I'd buy something about this big, which was a telephone relay with support circuitry, equivalent to one transistor, only a million times slower than today's transistors, uh, for about $40. 2002, you could buy 10 million transistors. It's now about 100 million transistors for a dollar. The interesting thing is, I mean, look at how smooth this trend is. I mean, you would think this is the output of some tabletop experiment, but this is a measure of a chaotic activity involving millions of people and hundreds of companies in many different countries and accusations of one country dumping products in another and economic recessions and conflicts and wars and uh, hurricanes and all kinds of things, and you have very smooth exponential progression. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable phenomena, and we see it in any measure we've looked at having anything to do with information. Uh, Unlike Gertrude Stein's roses, it's not the case that a transistor is a transistor. As we make them cheaper, they're better because they're smaller and the electrons have less distance to travel, so they're exponentially faster. Uh, You put those factors together and the average uh, cost of a transistor cycle has been coming down by half every 1.1 year. Then you add all of these other innovations like pipelining and data caching and other innovations in processor design gets it down to one year so we're doubling the price performance of electronics every year and it's also true of other databases and software and other, other measures of information technology that's 50% deflation and I'll talk a little bit later about the economic implications because economists depending on what week it is worry about deflation also uh, I mean they'll make the point that yes it's a good thing that you can buy the same stuff for half the price uh, a year later, but that's going to lead to a shrinking of the economy, particularly as information technology becomes a larger and larger part of the economy. Right now it's 8 percent, it'll be a majority of the economy by the 2020s. So people will buy a bit more, but they're certainly not going to double their consumption uh, in a a year. But actually what we find uh, is that we do better than that. We've had 18 percent compounded growth in dollars, uh, for the last 50 years in electronics despite the fact that you can get twice as much stuff uh, in every year uh, because every time price performance reaches a certain level it enables new technologies. People didn't buy iPods for $10,000 10 years ago uh, and we're going to continue that process. We have a sort of uh, unsatisfiable uh, human uh, desire and uh, need for for resources. Uh, the, sa- the Luddites were concerned about the same thing. Now that one person could make clothing uh, at ten times the rate of the weavers prior to automation in 1800, it's going to lead to a total collapse of the economy and there won't be any jobs. But people didn't want just one shirt anymore. They wanted a whole wardrobe and the common man and woman also wanted well-made clothing. Uh, and so we consume more as, we're, as price performance improves and actually keeps up with this Warden keeps up with this 50% deflation. So I put this chart up just to show you another random example. Uh, this is not Moore's law. This is not shrinking transistors on an integrated circuit. This is magnetic disk storage, so it's shrinking magnetic spots on a magnetic substrate. It's a different technical problem, different engineers, different co- companies, different countries, same exponential progression. Now, a really significant one is biotechnology, biology. We're learning to understand... And to reprogram biology as information processes. And biology is based on genes. Genes are little software programs. uh, We have about 23,000 of them. Uh, We haven't changed them recently. How much software do you have that you haven't changed in 30 months, let alone 30,000 years? We have programs like the fat insulin receptor gene that I mentioned, which basically says hold on to every calorie because the next hunting season may not work out so well. And that was a very good program 30,000 years ago when calories were few and far between. We'd like to change that program, and as I mentioned, when we did that in mice, we got a good result. And we actually now have a means of turning genes off. This just emerged in the last two, three years, RNA interference, where we have have a medication that doesn't have to go into the nucleus, which is hard to get into, just into the cell, which is easy. Any supplement or medication gets into the cell and we'll latch on to the messenger RNA expressing a gene and destroy it and prevent that gene from being expressed. So we have the means now of turning genes off. There are a lot of genes we have identified that are necessary for atherosclerosis, the source of heart heart disease, to progress, for cancer to progress. Really, every major disease utilizes a number of different genes uh, in order to go through its cycle. Uh, So there are many very exciting developments now using RNA interference to turn those particular disease causing genes off uh, and there's similar diseases uh, genes for promoting aging uh, and so on. Uh, there's some exciting new methodologies to turn genes on or to add new genes or modify genes. Gene therapy has been plagued by trying to send genes in through viruses and then they end up on the wrong chromosome or in the wrong place. One exciting new technique is to take a cell out uh, modify its its uh, DNA in in vitro, in in a Petri dish, uh, then examine that it's been done correctly, and then when it's been certified, then reproduce it millions of times, and then re-inject it into the patient's bloodstream, and it works its way into the right tissues. So if you modify my heart cells and re-inject them, uh, at least uh, many of them will end up in my heart. The others will just be discarded. This has actually uh, cured pulmonary hypertension, a fatal disease in animals and it's been approved for human trials Uh, and there are many other tech uh, projects using that technique and there's some other exciting new techniques for gene therapy so we'll have not just designer babies but designer baby boomers there are many other exciting biological processes of taking our cells reprogramming them uh, to be younger extending the telomeres correcting DNA errors uh, correcting things that we'd like to correct in DNA, because as I mentioned, it hasn't changed in thousands of years. Uh, This is a new paradigm of drug development. Most drug development today is using this rational uh, drug design. Uh, The old paradigm was called drug discovery, and some of that was automated, but still it was a matter of just finding something that happened to work. We had no model or theory as to why it worked. Oh, here's something, this lowers blood pressure. We don't know why it does that, and invariably these drugs were crude, tools. They had lots of side effects. We're discovering those now. 99% of the drugs on the market today were done this old-fashioned way. The new drugs will be quite different. I mean, a lot of people have the idea that they should avoid drugs because drugs are very crude and have all kinds of side effects. That is true of, of most any drug you'll find on the market today. That won't be true when we can actually develop very precise, uh, targeted medications that reprogram biology based on real models Uh, and simulations of how biology works. We're in the early stages of that, but there are many very exciting examples. Pfizer's torsotropib, uh, which blocks a specific enzyme that's used in a particular stage of atherosclerosis. that destroys HDL at a particular point. Uh, In phase 2 trials, it stopped atherosclerosis, which means it would stop heart disease. Uh, Personally, I wouldn't hang my hat on any one of these developments, although Pfizer is hanging its hat on that one. They're betting a billion dollars, which is a record on the phase three trials. But there are thousands of these developments uh, in the pipeline based on our ability now to understand, to simulate, and to reprogram the software processes, the information processes underlying biology. And we see the same exponential progression. A base pair of DNA cost $10 to sequence in 1990. It's a penny today. It's come down very smoothly and exponentially, uh, the amount of DNA that we've collected, as I mentioned, is doubled every year and that has continued. So now we're sequencing every disease, we're sequencing uh, DNA indicating aging processes, we're sequencing other, other uh, animals, uh, sequencing of course viruses, uh, and really gaining an information uh, basis for analyzing and reprogramming biology and then being able to prove them out in, in simulations. Another very revolutionary technology is communications. Uh, Many different ways to measure that, the amount of data being moved around, the the bandwidth, the speed, wireless, uh, wired, fiber optic, but uh, many different uh, aspects of communication technology, internet data traffic, uh, backbone speed, uh, are doubling every year, roughly. Uh, This is the number of hosts on the internet. This is the chart I mentioned earlier. Uh, the internet was doubling and it was only a few tens of thousands of nodes in the, in the 1980s, but doubling every year means multiplying by a thousand in 10 years, a million in 20 years, a billion in 30 years. Because of this slow second level of exponential growth, it's actually multiplying by a billion in only 25 years. Uh, but it's a very powerful phenomenon. I mean, look what it's done in just 10 years. Uh, the first reference to the World Wide Web on the New York Times was 1993, that's not so long ago and the first reference to blogs were only a few years ago. Uh, A few years ago Google was an interesting search engine that had no business model and people were saying that Internet advertising is a bust. Um, This is that same chart on a linear graph rather than a a log graph. So it looked like the Internet just came out of nowhere in the mid-1990s and this is how we experience technology because we live in a linear world. But if we look at these logarithmic trends, you can see these things coming. That's why it's important, particularly if you're involved with technology. But since information technology will be encompassing everything that's important ultimately, including things like energy and transportation, if I have time I'll comment on that, uh, it's important really for everyone to understand this exponential view of of, uh, technical progress. Another exponential trend is miniaturization. Because electronics is miniaturizing, but mechanical systems are as well. Uh, These are some illustrations that have been simulated now, and some have been built uh, from Eric Drexler's 1986 book uh, Founding the Modern Field of Nanotechnology, which was foreshadowed by Feynman's original comment that uh, he saw nothing in physics that would prevent us from actually building things at the molecular level. I have many examples in the book of impressive projects Uh, where people are, in fact, assembling molecules and creating very intricate structures. One scientist built a little robot that walks with a human-like gait at the molecular level. Uh, And there are four major conferences on uh, biological microelectronic mechanical systems, biomems, of actually putting blood cell-sized devices in in the bloodstream of patients. These have been experiments in animals. But, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, nanobots, it's very futuristic and unrealistic. We're doing it today... Okay, these nanobots or I wouldn't call them nanobots yet because they don't have computers or communication in them, but we do have blood cell-sized capsules, uh, many of which are nano-engineered, which are doing sophisticated and complex things and actually performing diagnostic and therapeutic uh, functions in animals today, and there's four major conferences on this subject. One scientist actually cured type 1 diabetes in rats with a nano-engineered capsule, 7 nanometer pores, lets insulin out in a controlled fashion, blocks antibodies because type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease, and it actually works, and there's now a project actually to build a version of that for human testing. Uh, so blood cell size devices is not as futuristic as it sounds. If you take these other trends that I've showed you uh, into consideration and consider what these uh, blood cell sized devices will be capable of in the 2020s, they will be able to have considerable computational and communication resources. They can be on a wireless local area network, uh, Computers can share their knowledge and their computational resources. A million computers can become one computer uh, when necessary, and then a million again. Uh, so these nanobots will have uh, considerable computational resources as we get to the 2020s. Uh, this is a design that you're looking at of a robotic red blood cell by Rob Freitas. He calls it a Resverse site. It's actually been worked out in considerable detail. Now, a red blood cell is a part of biology that we have reverse engineered. We understand how red blood cells work. We have complete models of them. We have simulations. Uh, They're actually fairly simple. And it brings up an interesting issue about biology. I mean, you'll hear people say how intricate biology is, and that's true. Uh, Some people say how optimal it is. That's absolutely not true. An evolutionary process will make certain assumptions early on, and then uh, it has to live with those assumptions, essentially, although it can come back now through human beings, which and we are the result of an evolutionary process, and change some of those early assumptions. One of those early assumptions is everything has to be built out of amino acids. Amino acids are a very limited class of three-dimensional structures that can be folded up from a linear sequence of amino acids. Uh, And as we reverse engineer biology, we're seeing that we can, in fact, engineer uh, devices that are thousands and sometimes millions of times more powerful. this respiratory site, a conservative analysis, was done independently that showed if you replaced 10% of your red blood cells with these robotic versions, uh, you could do an Olympic sprint for 15 minutes without taking a breath or sit at the bottom of your pool for four hours. <laughs> so, uh, honey, I'm in the pool will take on a whole new meaning. Um, this is a design for robotic white bloods. more complex, will require computation and a more intricate mechanical system, but something that should be feasible by the mid-2020s. I actually watched my own white blood cell in a microscope, and it's interesting. I mean, here's a cell that has intelligence. It actually noticed this other bacterium on the slide and then did a pretty clever maneuver to block its exit and surround it and destroy it, but it was very slow. It took an hour and a half to do this. It was a very boring thing to watch. (laughs) And these robotic devices could do this in seconds, uh, they could download software from the Internet for specific pathogens. If that... Well, if that sounds futuristic, uh, I point out that we have devices in the human body and brain already where we download software into them. Uh, there's a whole range of FDA-approved neural implants. For example, one for Parkinson's disease. And that's the biological neurons that are destroyed by Parkinson's disease are replaced by this computer that's surgically installed. The neurons in, that, in the vicinity... You know, of the destroyed tissue are now getting signals from the computer whereas they used to get signals from biological neurons and they're perfectly happy to do that and the whole system works well and so now you have a hybrid of biological and non-biological intelligence and the latest generation of this uh, neural implant allows you to to download new software to your neural implant from outside the patient. So we we already have devices in our bodies and brains where we can download software Uh, we have blood cell sized devices Uh, if you apply these exponential progressions in computation and communication and simulations of biology, uh, it's quite clear that by the 2020s they will be very very capable. Um, If we come back to the exponential growth of computation, extend this through the 21st century, we do have to address the question, I mean, are we aware of specific technologies that can support this ongoing progression? And and we are uh, the first... Our predictions of the demise of Moore's Law were 2002. Uh, Intel now says 2022. Uh, but in my view, by 2020, the key features of transistors on an integrated circuit will be a few atoms in width, and we won't be able to shrink them anymore, and there will be the end of Moore's Law. But we will then go to the sixth paradigm, which is three-dimensional molecular computing. And that was a controversial notion when my last book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, came out in 1999. I would say that that's uh, pretty much a mainstream view today by informed observers that why, of course, we'll have three-dimensional molecular computing. They're already working at small scale. We have another 15 years to go before we really need them. Uh, there are already very impressive projects. There's some early harbingers of three-dimensional circuits coming out. We might as well use a third dimension. We live in a three-dimensional world. Our brain, which uses a very slow and cumbersome information processing system, gets its power from being organized in three dimensions. And that's another example, in fact, of the... Suboptimality of uh, biology. Uh, our our interneural connections, which is where our thinking takes place, uh, can compute about 200 digitally controlled analog transactions a second. That's a million times slower than what electronics is capable of. It communicates through chemical gradients that move at a few hundred feet per second. That's a million times slower than electronics. So ultimately, uh, three dimensional electronic circuits will be much more capable from a hardware perspective. And I would say that that's not controversial today. But what is uh, perhaps still uh, more of an interesting question is will we have the software or will we just have extremely fast calculators? And that's where this other grand project comes in of understanding the human brain and really understanding its principles of operation. It's not, I work in artificial intelligence and we've had only limited input. We've had some, but limited input from brain science uh, to provide methods and tools and algorithms for artificial intelligence. And the reason for that is we haven't been able to see inside the brain up until recently. If I gave you a computer and gave you some crude magnetic sensors you could place outside the box and said, well, reverse engineer this, you'd come up with a theory that would be similar to our fairly recent theories about brain science. And, well, okay, when it's storing information, there seems to be some activity over here. And uh, I hear some noise on this little device, so maybe this is where... The information is being stored, but you wouldn't really be able to come up with a very good theory of operation. Uh, You wouldn't understand that there's an instruction set and 122 instructions and a data field and uh, and registers and so on. Uh, If, on the other hand, I allowed you to put individual sensors on individual signals that could track the signals at sufficient speed, uh, you could reverse engineer it. That's exactly, if you had the training, that's exactly what electrical engineers do when they reverse engineer a competitors' electronic product. Well, we are now getting those tools. Uh, the, the resolution of brain scanning in 3D volume has been doubling every year. Uh, spatial resolution has been moving as, as well. Uh, and we are now actually able to see in vivo, in a living brain, individual internal connections, see them signaling in real time. There's very interesting new scanning technology from the University of Pennsylvania that can do that and many other emerging scanning technologies that really can provide us the data of, of, of seeing the brain work. We can see that not only does the brain create our thoughts, but we can actually see our thoughts create our brain. That's a very interesting way in which the brain has plasticity. Uh, if you're thinking about a particular issue, you're actually developing new brain matter. There's interesting experiments with teaching people the violin and uh, the neural matter that has to do with controlling these four left fingers it suddenly grows greatly in, in complexity in the brain. So we really create who we are, but we can understand those principles and we can simulate them once we understand them. Now, a question comes up, okay, we can get this data, but can we make any sense of it? Or is it just going to be this vast amount of incomprehensible data? Doug Hofstadter wonders about that. Maybe our brains are below that threshold uh, necessary to understand our own intelligence. Maybe that's a basic uh, rule of complexity. the system will only have a certain amount of complexity and cannot really understand its own principles of operation. And if we were smarter and able to understand our brains, well, then necessarily our brains would be that much more complex and we'd never catch up with it. Now, that is not what we're finding. There are several hundred regions of the brain. We have enough data now uh, on several dozen of those regions to reverse engineer them, to describe how information is encoded in those regions, how it's transformed, how it transmits it, Uh, and in what format to other regions. Uh, This is one model and simulation of 15 regions of the auditory cortex done by a team of scientists here on the West Coast uh, that Lloyd Watts has organized. And applying psychoacoustic tests to this uh, simulation gets very similar results to applying psychoacoustic tests to human auditory perception. It's being used now or designed for front-end speech recognition because it can pick out conversation against a panoply of background sound, something that speech recognition software hasn't been able to do. Uh, There's another very interesting simulation of the cerebellum. I describe quite a few of these experiments in the book. Uh, The cerebellum is significant because this is where we do our scale formation. It comprises more than half the neurons in the brain and again the simulation uh, performs tests very similarly to human scale formation. Doesn't prove it's a perfect model uh, but it does show that we can understand uh, these regions and develop simulations. That brings up an issue, how complicated is the brain? Well, if we take a brain and actually describe all of the interneuronal connections and neurotransmitter concentration patterns, it's, uh, there's a lot of information there. It's thousands of trillions of bytes. But the design of the brain is contained in the genome. They may say, well, wait, you've got to include the, the ribosomes and the genetic machinery. That actually adds very little information. So the whole genome is 800 million bytes. 3 billion rungs, 6 billion bits, 800 million bytes, Uh, 2% of that codes for protein. The other 98% used to be called junk DNA. We actually understand now it's not junk. It's needed for gene expression. Uh, But it's replete with redundancies. There's one sequence called ALU that's repeated 300,000 times. And if we eliminate all the redundancy, uh, we get 30 to 100 million bytes, probably closer to 30 million bytes. That's smaller than Microsoft Word. And (laughs) 20 million bytes of that, approximately 20 to say 20 to 40 million bytes, describes the design of the brain. That's a billion times smaller than our estimate of the amount of information in a brain. How could that be? How could 40 million bytes describe something that's a billion times greater than it? Well, in computer science, we do that all the time. Genetic algorithms, for example, can be fairly compact. They then create millions of copies of themselves. They interact with a complex environment. They evolve a solution to a problem that is more complex than the uh, original designed by s- several orders of magnitude, and that is actually how the brain works. For example, on the cerebellum, uh, the genome has only a few genes, only a few tens of thousands of bytes. It describes the wiring of the, geno- of the cerebellum, which is half the neurons in the brain. Basically says there are four neuron types, they're wired like this, now repeat 10 billion times, and, oh, and add a few, a little bit of randomness with each repetition. And then this st- stochastically wired cerebellum, which is, has a lot of randomness in it, interacts with a complex environment and the child learns how to walk and to talk and to catch a fly ball and it gets filled up with meaningful information by interacting with a complex environment. That is basically the paradigm with which the brain works. But the complexity of the design is on the order of 40 million bytes. That's not simple. I'm not saying it's a, a, it's a simple system where we don't understand that design yet and the 40 million bytes are highly interactive with each other but it's a level of complexity that we can manage. And just to to show you an example, uh, I mean here's the famous Mandelbrot set. It's a very complex pattern and as we zoom in on a small piece of it we see, you know, endless complexity at every level. It seems to be a tremendously complicated uh, entity. The formula for this is six characters long. So I can show you how a lot of apparent complexity can emerge from simpler rules, Uh, Stephen Wolfram makes the same point, it's fairly simple cellular automata can create a lot of apparent complexity. And it is a cleverly designed system It evolved to be able to interact with a complex environment and absorb a lot of knowledge and skills therefore by multiplying its own apparent complexity. Uh, If we examine the pace with which we're reverse engineering the brain, the size of the simulations, the scaling up of, of detailed models, it's a conservative estimate to conclude that we will have detailed models of the principles of operation of the human brain by, by the 2020s. IBM is already putting together, in fact, a very detailed electrical and, and then chemical simulation of the cerebral cortex. Uh, the progress is, is very rapid. And uh, we can then... This will. We won't just necessarily just blindly copy these techniques. It will expand the toolkit in the artificial intelligence field that we can then create comparably complex and capable systems. And it will be a very uh, interesting combination because we'll be able to combine the subtle capabilities of human intelligence, which is largely our pattern recognition capability, with ways in which a thousand dollar computer is already superior to us. It can remember billions of facts easily. It can share its knowledge and skills. We spent years training one set of research computers to understand human speech and trained it like a child and automated that with tens of thousands of hours of transcribed speech and it would gradually improve its Markov models and neural nets and then finally learn its lessons and do a commercially acceptable level of speech recognition. If you want your personal computer to do the same thing, you don't have to go through that training like we do have to do with every human child. You can just load the evolved patterns of one computer. It's called loading the software. And uh, machines can share their knowledge at electronic speeds. We can share our knowledge too, at the speed of language which is millions of times slower but that was a big step over what animals can do and despite discussions of language capabilities of animals are much more limited and a unique thing about humans is that we do have this exponentially expanding knowledge base that we pass down from generation to generation and it grows as we pass it down Uh, no other animal does that I'll just touch briefly on economic implications but this is growing our economy, we've gone from $30 to $130 in, the value, in constant dollars in the value of, a, of an average hour of human labor because of uh, automation. Uh, and not only does the power of these technologies grow exponentially like the size of the internet, and the amount of data, and the speed with which you can move it around, but the adoption grows exponentially. I mean, here's e-commerce, smooth, exponential growth. It's now over a trillion dollars. Now, you might say, now, wait a second, wasn't there a boom and a bust somewhere in this uh, progression? There was strictly a capital markets phenomenon. The capital markets, Wall Street looked at the Internet and says, wow, this is going to transform every business model. And so the value of these uh, companies that had new business models just soared. 18 months later, when all of the business models in every industry hadn't been transformed overnight, Wall Street said, oh, I guess I was wrong, and everything went the other way. Meanwhile, there was slow and steady ex- but exponential growth in the adoption of these technologies, and we see this kind of boom-bust psych- psychology as a harbinger of true revolutions It happened with the railroads in the 19th century, and it happened with artificial intelligence in the 80s, and it's now happened with uh, the internet and telecommunications. There may be a boomlet going now with nanotechnology, uh, because the really exciting applications of nanotechnology are beyond the six to eight-year planning horizon of angel and venture capital. Uh, information technology is 8% of the economy. It's growing exponentially. It'll be a majority of the economy by the 2020s. It's already deeply influential in every other aspect of the economy. Uh, let me show you one example of uh, some work we've done. We, we developed the first large vocabulary speech recognition in one of my companies. We put this together with uh, commercial language translation and Speech synthesis, which another one of my companies developed the first speech synthesizer. So, this is a more recent generation of that that actually sounds pretty human. In this demonstration, the weakest part is the actual text to text language translation. But I was at Google the day before yesterday, and they took a data driven approach. And I think the most valuable asset Google has is not just its search engine, but its data, because it has these vast databases, and you can create intelligent systems if you have enough data that you can sort of self-organize. And they had a team of people develop a Farsi to English translator and nobody on the team spoke a word of Farsi. And the system actually worked as well as human, professional human translators uh, by actually just finding the patterns in all of these examples of translated uh, text. Uh, so this is a translation system. I've actually used this to talk to people who... In Europe, that didn't speak English, I spoke English, they heard me in German, they spoke German, I heard them in English. We were able to converse uh, quite well. Uh, This is a demonstration.
0: This is a demonstration
1: of a prototype of a quote translating and quote telephone. Period.
0: Von einem Prototyp eines Übersetzenden.
1: Within a few years, Kama.
0: Innerhalb einiger Jahre,
1: we will be able to talk to anyone, Kama.
0: We werden fähig sein, zu jemandem zu reden,
1: regardless of their language, period.
0: rücksicht auf ihre
1: the rain in spain Trauma. la pluie en espagne stays mainly in the plain period
0: reste dans la principalement
1: Merci pour votre attention period Thank you for your attention. Well, it's a lot easier to have recorded demos than live demos, but I've given this demo live, too. Uh, another project we have, which my colleague Ken Lindy, who's here, has been working on me, with me on, uh, as well as a team that we have, is applying pattern recognition to the stock market, where we try to make predictions about whether specific stocks will move up or down in a short period of time. You might say, didn't I mention that you can't predict what specific companies will do? And the answer is we can't. Uh, but we can predict substantially better than chance what they will do. And that's good enough to put us in the position of being like the house in a casino. The house can win or lose any bet, but over 50,000 bets, because the odds are slightly in its favor, statistically it's pretty much guaranteed or very likely to, to make money uh, uh, costs make enough money to overcome its overhead, so we have to make enough money to overcome transaction costs. Uh, but we've been trading with real cash, fairly significant amount over the last two years, and making 80 to 100 percent a year. We're launching a hedge fund with that. Uh, <laughs> Vinod Kostler, who's in this area, has been our principal backer. Mike Brown, not the Mike Brown that just <laughs> stepped down, but the one who was Chief Financial Officer of Microsoft and Chairman of NASDAQ is uh, on our board. Uh, and it just shows the uh, power of pattern recognition and the advantages of machine pattern recognition because whereas human pattern recognition is better, and there are human technical analysts that can see these patterns, but no human being can look at uh, second by second at the tick data of 5,000 stocks. So that's one of the advantages of harnessing even limited forms of human pattern recognition. You can then use the advantages of, of machine speed and repeatability and so on. Let me talk about a few scenarios, try to address a couple of issues of sort of long-term trends, uh, and then we'll take the questions that I see are being compiled here. Uh, 2010, early in the next decade, computers will largely disappear. They won't be these rectangular objects that we carry around. We'll have much more of a mesh of uh, computing uh, and communication. The World Wide Web will merge into the worldwide Mesh. The worldwide Mesh concept, uh, It's where all these devices, your personal computer, your cell phone, are not just spokes into the network that just send and receive messages. They're all nodes. They become part of the network. So not only is it transmitting your messages, other messages are going through it. When you have a message or need a connection, uh, it's rooting it and reorganizing uh, these billions and ultimately trillions of different nodes in a kind of a seamless web or seamless mesh. Uh, This is actually... Uh, again, developed by the Defense Department so they could drop a battalion in place and their communications would self organize. But Intel and Microsoft noticed it and they've actually adopted it for the next generation of communications. Google is interest, has supported it as well. Um, so we will have, the devices are going to get smaller and smaller. That's been the whole history of computation. The first machines were very remote and then they were on a desk, then under our arms, now they're in our pockets. They'll make their way in our clothing. Uh, Ken and I and our colleagues have another project called Sensory Apparel for Life where we are building smart underwear, uh, a smart bra for women and a a smart undershirt for men that will monitor your heart and your lungs, uh, particularly for people with heart problems. That is the early adopter market. They need to exercise, but they're afraid of exercising because it might kill them. Uh, So obviously what you should do is, whenever you exercise, just have your doctor with you at all times. Uh, Some people find that inconvenient, so uh, this will do a similar thing. But we will, computing will be in our environment, it will be everywhere. We will have ubiquitous computing and communication in our clothing. Uh, Images will be written to our retinas from our eyeglasses and contact lenses. This, This technology exists. I'm on the Army Science Advisory Board and the Army is very interested in using these technologies to put soldiers in virtual reality environments rather than being inside the weapons. The armed predator is an early uh, step in that direction, but ultimately we'll be taking soldiers out of the weapons. It's a dangerous place to be. Uh, And they'll be in virtual reality environments and feel like they're in the weapon. And even if they are in the weapon, like in an Abrams tank, which actually is a safe place to be, there's only been three combat casualties in the last 20 years in in Abrams tanks because of a lot of exotic technology. But the soldier can't just look outside the window, see what's going on. So they are in virtual reality environments, but this will be inexpensive, ubiquitous, very high quality, full immersion, high resolution technology early in the next decade. So, things like we're doing now, where we feel like we're together in terms of visual and auditory reality, we'll be able to do in these virtual reality spaces that'll be ubiquitous, will be online all the time. I actually have a technology, Teleportec, tech, uh, that enables me to be with an audience and actually see them, and they see me, and I look three dimensional. And as I move around, they see the local background behind me. I can't wander around like this. I have to stay behind this special podium. But uh, we give presentations around the, the world in Europe and Asia using this technology. But it's expensive today, and we have to send a technician out. But this will be ubiquitous technology early in the next decade. We'll have language translation. We'll have language technologies. I mean, you can call British Airways now and have an interesting conversation with their virtual receptionist. And you can talk to her about anything as long as it has to do with making reservations on British Airways, but uh, ultimately these, these virtual personalities will be a continual presence. Search engines won't wait to be asked. They'll see if you're struggling with something. Uh, that actress, what was her name uh, with that little round robot? and They'll say, oh, Natalie Portman, Queen Amidala, Star Wars 4, 5, and 6. Uh, you can kind of tell the search engine when to uh, quiet down, but... Uh, Uh, these uh, natural language technologies will be a primary uh, interface. If we go out to 2029, we'll have many turns of the screw in terms of doubling our price performance. It's 25 years. I mentioned uh, that will multiply the price performance, bandwidth capacity of information technologies, computation, communication, biological technologies, all these different information-based technologies by a factor of a billion. They're already very influential. Uh, We will have... completed the reverse engineering of the human brain, and we've expanded the AI toolkit, we will be able to really apply human levels of pattern recognition together with these natural advantages of machines to share knowledge at electronic speeds, and it will be a very powerful combination. But in my view, it's not a sort of alien invasion of intelligent machines coming from over the horizon to compete with us. It's emerging from within our civilization. We routinely do intellectual feats today, as I mentioned earlier, that would be impossible without our machines and we always move on to the next horizon. People say, well, if, you, if everybody can do all these things we struggle with today easily, people won't be motivated. That's not what we find. I mean, today a mathematician can sit with Mathematica or some other similar program and just easily solve problems that mathematicians a hundred years ago you know, would spend months on. That doesn't mean they're sitting and doing nothing. They're working on the next horizon. And we literally will get very intimate with this technology, we will merge with it we will have billions of nanobots in our bodies and brains keeping us healthy from inside, combating pathogens, uh, correcting DNA errors, uh, reversing aging processes. They'll be in our brains uh, the way we have neural implants today, but it'll be much more ubiquitous because uh, they'll be non-invasive. They can go through the capillaries. They can create virtual reality environments from within the nervous system uh, The scenario there is that the nanobots shut down the signals coming from your real senses, replace them with the signals that would be appropriate for the virtual environment, and then your brain feels like it's in that virtual environment. Uh, And the design of new virtual reality environments will be a new art form. Some will be recreations of beautiful spaces like this or uh, completely imaginary environments that would be impossible in the real world. You can go there with one other person or a thousand other people, have any kind of uh, encounter, involving all five senses with other people. Uh, people will transmit their whole flow of sensory experiences and the neurological correlates of their emotions out on the web, the way that people now beam their images from their webcams. I call them experience beamers, and you can plug in and experience what it's like to be someone else. Uh, there'll be interesting archived experiences that you can experience or interact with. That'll be another new art form. Uh, most significantly, uh, it'll be an expansion of human intelligence, we'll be able to expand our memories, our rational functions, our pattern recognition. Uh, we'll be able to really very directly expand our uh, intelligence. Uh, we do that today routinely. If all the AI programs, narrow AI programs were to stop today, our economic infrastructure would come to a halt. You couldn't get money from your bank. Communication would stop. post transportation would stop. That wasn't true 30 years ago. Uh, there's Artificial intelligence permeating our modern infrastructure today, Uh, you get an automated diagnosis from from your electrocardiogram, from blood cell images, Uh, AI programs fly in land airplanes, guide intelligent weapons, make a trillion dollars of investment decisions in the stock market, automatically detect credit card fraud, and there's hundreds of other examples of things that were research projects in AI 15 years ago. I call them narrow AI because they can perform specific functions that used to require human intelligence that can now be done actually very often better by these machines, Uh, but they're narrow because they don't have the flexible, supple, subtle, broad intelligence of human beings. Uh, But that will change, and we will actually expand our own human intelligence through this intimate merger with our intelligence. Uh, And this has far-ranging implications. Uh, A book that... I came out with last year that I co-authored with Terry Grossman, MD, a longevity expert in Denver, uh, talks about three uh, bridges to radical life extension. Bridge one is what we know right now, and we can really aggressively overcome aging and disease processes. Uh, I had type 2 diabetes 20 years, two years ago, but I have no indication of diabetes. I had uh, predisposition to heart disease. My father died of age 58. I'm 57. Um... But I used to have cholesterol 280, now it's 130. You know, I have no uh, indication of that disease. Uh, on a lot of biological aging tests indicate I'm aging pretty slowly. Uh, we can really overcome genetic dispositions, certainly to disease. I would maintain to aging processes as well. People say, oh, it's 80% in your genes. That's only true if you follow the sort of uh, watered-down recommendations that come from our health authorities. Aggressive about reprogramming your biochemistry, you can really overcome these dispositions. We need to do that because when our genes evolved 30,000 years ago, it was not in the interest of the species for people to live past child rearing. That meant age 30, so average life expectancy was you know, at best in your 20s, otherwise, you're just using up the precious resources of the tribe. Uh, every time we've had technological advances, we've progressed in human longevity. It was only 37 in 1800, so sanitation antibiotics, those were big technical advances. Uh, we've doubled life expectancy in, in two centuries. Uh, it's not gonna take another two centuries to double it again because of this exponential growth. The next major technology, uh, bridge two, is the mastering of the information processes in biology, the biotechnology revolution, that will really reach its maturity in 10 or 15 years. I believe we will have overcome things like heart disease and cancer and diabetes, at least turn them into chronic conditions. We, we, There are about a dozen different aging processes, we understand a number of them already, and we'll be able to reverse those. That'll be a bridge to the third bridge, the nanotechnology revolution, where we can go beyond the limitations of biology, uh, and that really will lead to radical life extension. So if you can uh, take care of yourself the old-fashioned way for another 10 years, uh, we may actually get to experience this uh, remarkable century ahead. So just... I'll end with a brief comment about the importance of long-term planning. The first thing is to really appreciate this exponential view. Uh, The next century will be quite remarkable, let alone 10,000 years. We'll make more than 10,000 years of progress at the year 2000 rate uh, in this century. Uh, By the 2040s, which is the date I've sort of put for the, quote, singularity, uh, meaning a radical transformation of of the reality of human existence, Uh, the amount of non-biological intelligence we create that year will be billions of times more powerful than all biological intelligence that exists today. Once non-biological intelligence gets a foothold in in our brains, uh, it will expand exponentially. That doesn't mean it's self-replicating, but that's just the nature of the power of these information technologies. The crossover point will be in the late 2020s and 2030s and 2040s, it will come to predominate. In my view, it's still human intelligence. Uh, In my view, human means uh, the species that expands our horizons. We didn't stay on the ground. We didn't stay on the planet. We didn't stay with the limitations of our biology. uh, And we won't stay uh, with the limitations of of our biological thinking either. Uh, So the end of the century will be uh, remarkably different. The reason uh, this is called the singularity is just a metaphor with where it's very hard to see beyond the event horizon of this radical transformation. We can describe it in mathematical terms and say, well, we'll, we'll be billions, trillions of times more intelligent. Uh, it's very hard to describe what that means. Uh, just as it's very hard to describe what's go- what goes on in a black hole because we can't see inside a black hole, but we do have enough rational thinking to actually make intelligent comments about what it's like inside a black hole even though we've never been inside one, and we can do... Uh, similar mental exercise with regard to the dramatic transformation that humanity will see uh, in this century. Uh, This is not a utopian vision because there's both promise and peril. Uh, We don't have to go further in the 20th century to see tremendous amount of destruction amplified by technology, and these are very powerful uh, 21st century technologies. Uh, We will have the opportunity to do things like overcome poverty the latest United Nations report shows actually significant progress in that. Poverty's been cut in half in the last 10 years in Asia. Uh, but The World Bank projects it'll be cut by 90% by 2015. There's been similar progress all around the world except in sub-Saharan Africa. We do see, however, uh, progress even there in terms of this exponential growth of the price performance of information technologies like AIDS drugs, which cost $30,000. Ten years ago, per patient per year, didn't work very well. Now they work pretty well in, in Africa, now down to $100 per patient per year. Still more than we'd like, and we'd like to do, we should be doing more. But at least we actually have the technological tools to do more now because of this uh, law of accelerating returns. Uh, we'll be able to overcome things like biological disease with nanotechnology, but that will introduce its own dangers uh, in terms of uh, potential for self-replicating nanotechnology I've had argue, arguments with people like Rob Friedis about do we really need self replicating nanotechnology. I agree, that I, I believe we do, if for no other reason but to protect ourselves from self replicating nanotechnology. <laughs> uh, so, what's going to protect us from that? Ultimately, strong AI will have these very intelligent systems that can protect us from pathological nanotechnology. What will, ha- what will protect us from uh, pathological AI? Well, a more, a more intelligent AI will protect us. Uh, it's a little bit like that story of the universe sitting on the back of a turtle and what is that sitting on? It's another turtle and it's turtles all the way down Uh, but how to protect ourselves from pathological AI is actually probably the most important question that we're facing. We do have a new existential risk that didn't exist 40 years ago and it's not just atomic weapons in fact it's something more formidable at a routine college laboratory the means and the tools exist to create a bioengineered biological virus. Uh, all the models show that would be much worse than an atomic bomb, uh, and the tools and the knowledge to do this is much more widespread. That's an existential risk. People wonder, well, why didn't we make more preparations for 9-11 or more preparations for Katrina? Well, here's a very profound danger uh, that people aren't doing anything about. Uh, I've given some testimony to Congress and proposed uh, that we have a major program to put a rapid response system in place, Uh, that would uh, consist of RNA interference. We'd sequence a new virus quickly, uh, create an RNA interference-based medication, and then uh, rapidly uh, gear up production. That's something we could put in place. We should do that. It will naturally come about anyway, but it'll take years longer than if we have a Manhattan-style project to do it. Uh, So the increase in power of these technologies, I believe, is inexorable. How we apply them is not, Uh, the future is still in our hands, Uh, whether these things get applied for promise of peril and whether we have prepared the defenses for inevitable peril that uh, some malevolent use will present uh, will really depend on the priorities that we set. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Um, We're going to take some questions here. Um, You've been passing them through. If you haven't passed your written question to a person in the yellow hat, please do that now. So, Ray, the first question of many here is, um, you've shown exponential growth. Oh, excuse me, this is from Bugs Roads. You've shown exponential growth in many different areas that affect how we work with information. Is there any kind of information or knowledge work that is not growing exponentially? Are there any exceptions?
1: Well, we do see technologies that are at the sort of flat asymptote of an S-curve in things like energy and uh, transportation. Uh, there are some increases that have in price performance that have come from information technology. I mean, airfares have been coming down somewhat, and Uh, We can distribute energy somewhat more efficiently. But uh, there will be new S-curves, particularly when we can apply intelligent information processes to the organization of matter and energy in the form of nanotechnology. Uh, If we converted 0.03% of the sunlight that falls on the Earth uh, to energy, we'd meet all of our projected needs for 2030. We will actually be able to do that uh, in the 2020s, Uh, with nano-engineered solar panels that will be highly efficient, lightweight, easy to install, and very inexpensive. We'll ultimately be able to produce almost anything uh, at almost no material cost, really just the cost of the information. We'll be able to store that energy in highly distributed nano-engineered fuel cells that are decentralized and therefore not subject to the dangers of the highly centralized energy sources we have now. Uh, So not everything is information technology. I can't really think of forms of information technology that haven't progressed. And that people will come up with examples like, well, what about word processing? That hasn't changed. Uh, there are always mature technologies that have really fulfilled their niche. And there aren't improvements there. I mean, just like in the Cambrian explosion, there was this rapid evolution of body plans. But then that became a mature technology. There was no reason to improve them. They had reached their fairly optimal point. That didn't mean evolution stopped. It went to a higher level. It then concentrated in higher cognitive functions. So we have, we're not making much improvement in, in word processing. Uh, it's arguable whether we're making progress in operating systems, but we are working on higher levels of more intelligent software that encompasses more and more uh, of our uh, industrial infrastructure.
2: Okay. Here's a second question from uh, Camilo uh, Ramirez. Um, so how, how do we know that the singularity has arrived are we going to be aware of it or will like a neuron in a brain will it just bypass our intellect in other words um, if the singularity is near how can we prove that it actually came
1: okay. well I have dialogues in the book and Molly says that she'll know the singularity is here when she has a million emails in her, in her inbox uh, <laughs> by that measure we're almost we're almost there uh, laughter and it's a good question whether we'll notice it. Uh, if you pass the event horizon of a, of a singularity, of a black hole, uh, as far as physics is concerned, you actually don't notice it. Uh, there's no sign there that says you've gone be- beyond the point of no return. Um, and, you know, some theories of the singularity have these capabilities going infinite, and I had actually an interesting mathematical dialogue with Hans Moravec uh, what the underlying formulas were for this growth of uh, this exponential growth, and a subtle change in the formula does have it actually explode into a true mathematical singularity, meaning going to an infinite level in a finite amount of time, which I don't believe. Uh, and in the back of the book, there's is this discussion of exactly where that point is. Uh, but in my view, it's growing by double exponential meaning that it will reach fantastic levels by today's perspectives, but still finite, and by some measures, today's technology is fantastic by the standards of, say, 200 years ago. Uh, So it will be truly transformative. Uh, At the Accelerating Change Conference this Saturday, uh, they describe, well, there's two types of singularitarians. There's the hard takeoff singularitarians, and then there's the more conservative soft takeoff ones, and I was put in that camp. Uh, so it's nice to be at a conference where I was the conservative. <laughs>
2: so. <laughs> okay, so here's another question from Dan um, um Is weapons technology growing exponentially? Will an individual be able to kill a billion people for a few dollars?
1: Well, it's actually a serious... <laughs> it's a serious question uh, because of the leverage that these technologies provide, and that's, of course, the concern. Uh, I don't know about a few dollars, but you know, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars, you can get the equipment to to, to do what I described earlier, uh, which could kill uh, many millions of people in terms of bi- creating a bioengineered biological virus. Uh, so that, and when we get the self-replicating nanotechnology, we'll have similar concerns there. Uh, so that was actually the source of concern of underlying Bill Joy's. Uh, why the future doesn't need a cover story for Wired. Uh, And that sort of stemmed from this barroom discussion I had with Bill Joy in September 1998 in in Lake Tahoe. Uh, And actually, we're headed back to Lake Tahoe this weekend, so maybe that'll generate another controversy. But uh, the the concern is real, uh, and it's led... Some people to say, well, let's relinquish technology, not all technology, just those dangerous ones like biotechnology and nanotechnology. And I pointed out that that's pretty much all of technology because <laughs> we're, sh- we're shrinking technology at an exponential rate, so everything will be you know, down into the sub-100 nanometer uh, key feature range within 20 years. Uh, you'd have to really relinquish all of technology uh, to relinquish those dangerous technologies. And you can't keep the, the safe ones. Actually, uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, makes this point. And actually a pretty well-written uh, Unabomber manifesto uh, where he says uh, you can't get rid of the good parts without the bad parts because they're all intertwined. And the same technology that will cure cancer also can empower this bioengineer, uh, bioengineered pathological virus or bioterrorist. Uh, so Kaczynski says get rid of all of it. Uh, More responsible voices have said similar things. Uh, uh, Bill McKibben, who came up with uh, the concept of global warming uh, in his book, uh, recent book, says we've had enough. Technology, it's been great, but let's stop now. Um, (laughs) Which I think is ultimately an irresponsible position and also an untenable one. Aside from the fact that you need a totalitarian state, as in the novel Brave New World, to enforce that, it would just drive the technologies underground where it would be even less stable. And this concern came up when uh, software viruses first emerged some 20 years ago. The comments were made, well, okay, these are unsophisticated, but ultimately, when we have a big internet and we'll have very sophisticated software viruses, it's going to totally destroy world communication. And part of that prediction was, was correct. They have become very sophisticated. It's very interesting to read how clever some of them are of depositing eggs in various places and then triggering them and and so on, but the the immune system, the technological immune system that we've put in place, has actually been very effective, and it's a good example of a new human-designed, self uh, self-perpetuating, self-reproducing pathogen, the software virus, uh, that we've actually done a very good job. I mean, generally within hours, at most a day or two, a new augmentation of the technological immune system emerges to deal with these new threats, and the internet has never been brought down for even a few seconds. If we can do half as well uh, with biological viruses and self-replicating nanotechnology, we'll be doing very well. And a lesson there is that this is in a completely open system. There's no certification of practitioners in in software. There's no certification of products. It's a completely unregulated industry, despite the fact that software is very influential and is used in things like intensive care units and flying airplanes, and yet there's no certification. Uh, There is some for health technologies. Uh, But this sort of self-organizing system has worked very well. Uh, Some of the uh, specters described in Bill Joy's article are taking these future uh, dangers as if they were foisted on today's completely unprepared world. Uh, I do think we need to put a few extra stones on the defensive side of of the equation. We do need to anticipate things like uh, the potential for bioterrorism, not just bioterrorism as in smallpox and anthrax, but actually designed Bioterrorism, we need to anticipate these things. Um, But uh, these these spectres do exist, and I think it's actually the most important problem facing humanity is to uh, prepare the defenses for these existential risks. Okay.
2: Um, This is one version of, of many people's questions. This one's by Deneen Weber. Um, what will happen when the paradigm of exponential growth collides with the brick wall of finite natural resources?
1: Well, we have plenty of natural resources. Uh, if we have nanotechnology and uh, effective artificial intel- intelligence to utilize them, uh, with nanotechnology we can keep reorganizing the matter and energy that we have to meet the material needs of even a greatly expanded human biological population that may occur when we significantly decrease the death rate. We'll be able to create virtually any physical product just from these information resources by reorganizing the atoms and molecules in in our vicinity. And as I mentioned earlier, the capacity of matter and energy to support computation and communication is really vast and will enable us to increase our intelligence by uh, a factor of many trillions. Uh, so we have plenty of resources. Uh, the actual amount of physical resources needed is smaller and smaller. I mean, computers have gotten s- smaller and smaller as they've gotten more and more powerful. Uh, that will continue to where we have very, you know, tiny computers. Uh, I mean, the electronics industry, as influential as it is, uses very little energy, uses very little material resources. Uh, so that is not uh, really a limitation for what I'm talking about.
2: Um. This is from Stuart Brand. Um, In in this uh, arena of uh, ever accelerating exponential growth, what should remain slow?
1: Well, I'm not sure I can think of very much uh, because I think we ultimately will speed up our, our thinking process um, and I mean you could say contem- you know contemplation and meditation and so on, but we'll be able to do that quickly also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> But we'll, we'll change our subjective appreciation of time, so a short period of time may seem like a long period of time. Uh,
2: well, well, I heard the word sex, so here's another question from Arthur Young. How do you see the law of accelerating returns affecting sexual gratification?
1: Uh, I see it affecting it a lot. I mean, these communication technologies have always uh, been used for uh, sexual Communication and interest has always been an early adopter technology. I mean, uh, Gutenberg's first book was the Bible, but then there was a whole century of more Purian themes, and certainly we've applied movies and film and uh, other forms of virtual reality. Uh, Not everybody finds telephone sex to be uh, satisfactory, but uh, when we add more senses to virtual reality, we'll be able to relate to each other in virtual reality environments, uh, particularly when we have full immersion virtual reality encompassing all the senses. We'll be able to do that crudely, actually, uh, early in the next decade. We will have full immersion visual auditory virtual reality, which will be interesting, but we'll have forms of tactile communication as well. I've actually just filed five patents on that. Uh, (laughs) Now, when we get to full immersion virtual reality from within the nervous system, we really will be able to have any kind of interaction with anyone in these virtual environments. Uh, and there's a lot of advantages. Obviously, there's safety advantages. Uh, you know, there are various biological problems like pregnancy or STD, STDs are not going to be an issue in virtual reality. Uh, you can hang up on a virtual reality uh, <laughs> encounter just like you hang up on a telephone call, which is auditory virtual reality, uh, and you don't have to be the same boring person all the time. You can project yourself as someone else uh, a couple can change themselves into each other and see the relationship from each other's perspective. Of course, the person that you project yourself as might be overridden by your partner who may choose to see you as someone else. Uh, (laughs) We do this in our imaginations now, but uh, the virtual thing will be much more real than than our imagination. Uh,
2: So here's here's a question from um, Art Carver. If you were a student now, say, in college or a graduate school, what field would you enter?
1: Well, I, you know, human knowledge, which as I mentioned is a unique attribute of the human species, and I think the purpose of life uh, is to expand human knowledge. There's nothing more profound than being able to create some knowledge that has some power, whether it's uh, my daughter's field of interest, which is choreography, or mathematics, or computer science, or literature, or music. Uh, that is, that is uh, what's truly exciting. Uh, you and I were chatting before this presentation about how will we feel when we can transcend our bodies. And, but when we create knowledge, we are transcending our bodies. We're not worrying about our biological bodies. We have entered the world of ideas. That is actually what the future horizon will be. We'll have far greater power to create ideas, and we'll also be able to project bodies when we want them and need them, uh, but, so in order to create knowledge, you need passion. I mean, you'll hear lots of commencement speakers say, follow your passion, but I do think that is the right advice to find something that you're passionate about. Uh, And all forms of knowledge are important. Uh, It is important, I think, to understand science and technology, because that still is the cutting edge of, of these advances. Uh, If someone has any interest in technology, I think math is very important because it is the language of science and technology and it continues to be remarkable to to me how powerful math is. I actually think it's a very sexy subject.
2: Actually, here's another uh, question from Stuart Brandy. He has a lot of questions tonight. Um, Earlier in your talk, you said that the singularity was just a metaphor. So what's really going on?
1: I didn't use the word just. (laughs) Uh, The word is a metaphor, uh, but it will be a very real historical transformation. Uh, And it is a metaphor because, as I mentioned, uh, we can't clearly see beyond the event horizon, but we can use our intelligence. It is beyond that threshold where we can describe things even if we haven't experienced them and many of their implications. But it will be more remarkable than what we can talk about today because we will have millions of people amplified by our technology for all this period of time, coming up with very creative ways to use this technology. I mean, nobody thought of blogs even, you know, five, six years ago.
2: Okay. I will use the host prerogative of asking the last question. Um, In one of your your books, you use the word um, spirituality. So um, what do you understand by the word God?
1: Well, it's a three-letter word. Uh, (laughs) And... It's described with many stories and metaphors uh, in different religious traditions, but they all do have a few things in common. They describe God, whether it's uh, sort of a cranky old man making agreements with people or some uh, Star Wars-like force that sort of permeates the universe. They all describe God as being infinite in knowledge, creativity, uh, beauty and love and knowledge, all-knowing. Uh, So it's an ideal of infinite levels of these attributes. Well, what do we find uh, in an evolutionary process? We find that entities grow in knowledge, creativity, intelligence. Uh, They become more beautiful. I mean, they do. If you look at the history of, of, say, biological evolution, Uh, if you look at entities undergoing evolution in a genetic algorithm, they become more beautiful. Uh, They become ultimately more capable of subtle... Uh, intelligence and being able to understand emotional qualities like love so they become more loving uh, so they're moving towards greater levels of these attributes which are attributed to God without limit uh, so they're moving in a spiritual direction and they actually explode exponentially so that they ultimately become vastly uh, powerful in terms of these attributes which are attributed to God uh, as I said, without a limit, uh, that they don't actually become infinite in an exponential uh, evolutionary process, but they do uh, appear to be virtually infinite from our current limited perspective. Uh, ultimately, when we can sort of saturate the matter and energy in our vicinity and ultimately beyond our solar system, with the supremely powerful, intelligent uh, uh, resources that have encompassed our emotional intelligence. Uh, it will be vast levels of these, of these qualities uh, that we attribute to God so that's becoming godlike as, as much as we can imagine with any sort of scientifically grounded process and the other aspect of spirituality that's relevant to, to these considerations is consciousness uh, we have entities that we attribute consciousness to which are human beings at least that seem conscious and because uh, we have debates about whether other entities are conscious. Some people say animals are not conscious, they're just operating by instinct, meaning some primitive machine-like quality. Other people uh, say that higher level animals are conscious. I think my cat is conscious, but uh, other people haven't met my cat, so. uh, But uh, we don't have an agreement on that. uh, And we're really just making an assumption about other human beings. Uh, we will ultimately have fully non-biological entities that claim to be conscious. Okay, we have them today. Uh, Characters in your kids' video games will claim to be conscious, to be angry or sad. They're not very convincing today because they don't have the subtle cues that we associate with really having those emotions. But the essence of my prediction is that in a few decades, these entities will be as complex as human intelligence. It'll be based on the reverse engineering of human intelligence. They will be convincing. Uh, They will have the subtle cues. They will say they're conscious. And have feelings. And uh, this is not a philosophical statement, but more of a political prediction. We will come to accept them as being conscious. They'll get mad at us if we don't accept it. And since they're going to be very intelligent, I think we're going to want to go along with them. Uh, And anyway, they're going to be us, because as I said, we're going to evolve into merging with our technology. And it's a very, a lot of, some scientists say, well, it's not really a scientific question, therefore it's an illusion and doesn't exist. My feeling is it's actually the most important. Question, and I agree, it's not a scientific question, ultimately. Uh, sometimes these discussions devolve into discussions of neurology or uh, objective criteria. But really, whether or not an entity is conscious and what it's feeling uh, cannot be fully penetrated. It's a difference between science, which is objective real, uh, observations and analytic deductions from that, from that, and subjective experience, which is a synonym for, for consciousness. But we are really basically just a pattern... Uh, you can say, no, you're really this stuff here. But this stuff here is completely different than it was a few weeks ago. Uh, most of the cells in our body completely are destroyed and are regrown within a matter of months. Okay, the neurons are not, but the, the components of the neurons, the filaments, the tubules, all the different components are actually changed, some within a few days, some within a few months. I'm completely different stuff than I was a few months ago. So what has continuity? Well, it's, it's the pattern of information. It's just like the pattern that water makes in a stream, you can look at this pattern around the rocks and it's a very similar pattern, it can stay stable for months, maybe changes a little, but obviously the water that makes it up changes every few milliseconds. So we are a pattern, so what if we capture that pattern and just translate everything that's salient about it into some other substrate, should be the same thing, Uh, but we're going to have very interesting philosophical discussions about that. In my view, if we capture the, the patterns that are important, uh, and if we are, in fact, conscious, then these new entities will be conscious. And so we'll be expanding consciousness. That's another spiritual process.
2: Ray will be signing books in the back if you have them. Thank you so Thank much. You.